Um, welcome. My name's Eric. It's good to see all of you guys here tonight at the village. When I was uh, headed into the sixth grade, I moved from Miami, Arizona to Winona Lake, Indiana um, with my parents, of course, and because uh, it was their deal, not my deal. And so I was headed into the sixth grade. So I showed up to the sixth grade and at recess, this girl comes bounding up to me and she hands me a note. And I open the note and she points to the girl on the swings and she says it's from her. And I think it said something along the lines of, will you go out with me? Um, so I said, okay. So I walked over to the swings and I I talked to this girl, and, and somehow I was going out with her in the sixth grade. Now, I had no idea what that meant. It turns out that she lived three doors down. Um, and so from where I lived, that's how she knew who I was. She'd been watching me, I guess, because um, I was a new boy on the block. But anyway, we would ride the bus to and from school, and we were in that period of time when you know public schools showed you these 70s, uh, you know, uh, videos on your body's changing. You might notice hairs growing under your arms kind of thing. Um, this is how babies are made, all those kinds of things. But it was certainly people I did not recognize because they dressed weird. Um, so I remember that, you know, this, she was the first girl that I held hands with. Um, but we talked about it, and we were just pretty convinced that the adults didn't know what they were talking about, and if you kissed each other, you were definitely having a baby, so we were not doing that. Um, now, I, I was introduced to relationship because I didn't really know what it was all about, and it meant that I had to make this decision. Would I swing on the swings with my new girlfriend, or would I play basketball? And this was the dilemma of the sixth grader. Well, basketball won out, and I think we broke up. But like three months later, uh, it was an off-and-on-again kind of relationship, but it eventually ended. Um, now, I'm going to pause here, and if you didn't know, we're in this conversation about relationship at the village, and we have come to that message on sexuality. So I know that there's some 11 and 12 years old in here, and that might mean that you have, and parents, so I, let me just give you a couple, like, disclaimers. Number one, this will be rated G with maybe the occasional PG in it. Um, you're only going to hear me say things like sex and sexuality, so you will hear those words, so if that makes you uncomfortable, uh, you're, there is a, if you're like 11 to 12, you can go hang out with the 9 to 10 year olds. If you're younger than that you're, and your parents want to take you to the other class, they can do that. Um, that's pretty much all I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about anything else. Okay? So yeah, we're okay that way. So if you need, and people get up and sit down at the village all the time, I will not be distracted. Um, so if you're like, wow, this is making me uncomfortable, I got to get out of here. And, and then you're going to be like, Eric, what did you really actually talk about? It wasn't that big. Okay, so let me continue my story because. I think it's important for you to understand where I'm coming from. So that was kind of my introduction to relationship and, and women and that kind of thing. Um, but I don't know, if you've been at the village for very long, 
you might have noticed a theme in a lot of my stories. One, that I moved around a lot. And two, that there was always a guy with somehow that I was just like connected to. He was like my best friend and it was horrific agony for me to leave this guy who was my best friend. So every move was just super emotional. Um, So we, my parents moved from Indiana to North Carolina and from North Carolina, um, they made it back to Tucson, Arizona on my, in my freshman year of high school. And the funny thing about it is, is they moved right into the apartments that they got married in and I was born in. So they were starting all over again. And they were depressed and I was depressed. And my whole family was depressed, really. And so my next-door neighbor happened to be this guy named Ian. And he loved to run and I loved to run. I was playing basketball. So all we ever did him and I was run and play basketball and play board games on Friday nights and like he we were inseparable now his dad was a traveling not traveling I always want to say traveling he was a visiting professor at the U of A so he's only going to be there for a year now as that relationship grew what happened in me was something I didn't expect as I began to to deepen my friendship with Ian um I began to feel like I wanted more out of this relationship. I wanted something more, and it was confusing to me. And it was something that I had to start trying to figure out in where I was as a man and a person and, and where my attractions were. And so that's part of my journey. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you each little step and how I ended up getting married to my wife and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to know, as we talk about this, I've had my own kind of wrestling with my own gender, with my understanding of sexuality, all those kinds of things. Um, So where I want to start tonight in this conversation is I want to start in Genesis, and I'm not going to go read it. I'm just going to narrate for you for a moment. So in the beginning, God created man and woman, or he created them male and female. What's interesting is that it says that they reflect his image. So man and woman, male and female, reflect the image of God. And what's fascinating about that is that he then gives man and woman something to do. He says that they need to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So he says that not only are you to reflect the image of God, being male and female, you're supposed to together create more image reflectors, right? And you're supposed to go out and subdue the earth. You're supposed to tell the earth who God is. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, here's the thing about being an image bearer. What Adam and Eve had in the garden was them looking at God and reflecting God. So you could imagine God being a mirror and that they look up at God and they reflect him to one another, and to the world. And what's interesting about that is that they are not in control. They're really actually vulnerable because the person who's defining who they are is God. So to be an image bearer is to be defined, your identity is being defined by God. Now if you jump forward into the narrative of Genesis, into chapter 3, you find this conversation between Eve and a snake. Now, however you believe, whatever you believe about Genesis, if it's literal or if it's a narrative, this is an important story. Because Eve and and Adam, because he's probably there, in this conversation with what we find out to be the enemy, Satan. And the conversation really is, 
do you want power or don't you want power? See, they were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Satan says, well, that's because God doesn't want you to be like him. And so what really happens there, because Adam and Eve decide to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that they decide to get a new image. And instead of looking at God and reflecting God, they begin to look at themselves and reflect themselves. And that's a position of power. Okay? So if, you, if reflecting God is a vulnerable place, reflecting ourselves is a place of power. We get to define who we are. We get to say the way it is. Now what happens is, is that because we do this, because we sin, we're cast out of the garden, and sin becomes this overwhelming force that we have to live under. And shame becomes an overwhelming force that we have to live under. Now, when we think about this word sin, a lot of times when we hear it, we just think, well, that just means you do bad things. Well, if you look at the New Testament, the word in the Greek just means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. But if you look at the Bible as a whole, what you find out about sin is that it means it's not the way it's supposed to be. That sin itself is not the way it's supposed to be. And when you and I are wrestling with our understanding of our sexuality inside of our marriages and inside of of relationships and in our community, how we deal with that, um, we have to face sin in kind of three categories. And we're going to deal with these three categories kind of wrestle with them a little bit, okay? Number one, sin distorts us, okay? So, the, you know, theologians call this original sin, but it's a sin that distorts us. It was given to us, and we didn't choose it, okay? So when we think about our sexuality, and we think about the things that, that we wrestle with in life, it is the emotions and the experiences of who we are as male and female and the things that we wrestle with sexually, that they are just what they are. Right? There is this disruption. Something we can't deal with. It's just who we are. Right? There's something broken about us. And so we get up in the morning and we have that sense, something's broken. I didn't choose to break it. It's just broken in me, right? Now, I want you to think about this because a lot of times we don't talk about it. We don't spend a lot of time on it. But I would ask you, what do you think inside of you is broken when it comes to your sexuality? Now, it's not just that it comes to you genetically. It's something that comes to you out of your environment, but it's something that you didn't choose, It's just the thing that seems to to overpower you. So there's this this disruption. The second thing, the second sin, and we we call this actual sin in theology, but it's a distracting sin. It's the actual things that you and I wrestle with in life, the choices we have to make, the things that are put in front of us, right? And so... In our culture, which is an over-sexualized culture, 
we end up wrestling with this in a very huge kind of way, right? So we're told what beauty is, and we begin to buy into that. We're told what it means to be a man, and we buy into that. We get caught up in People magazine and in the stories of the idols that we follow and who they broke up with and which person they're married to. We get caught up in shows where romance is, is kind of, this is the way it's supposed to be. And we get caught up in who's going to be with who. And, and we're so worried about people who don't exist, right? Or, or we find ourselves just bombarded with technology and the addictive parts of that, from pornography to just what we read to what we let in, right? Or, or maybe we go as far as, as we, we want, we, put our, we see these opportunities to put ourselves in other relationships and to daydream about those things. You know, you and I could go on and on about the distracting sin that's laid out before us and the ones that we just grab hold of for a moment and choose this and choose that. The, the, the titillization that you and I participate in over and over again. And some of you are going, no, that's not me. No, I say, yes, it is you. You do it. And you have all these lines of justifications why watching Game of Thrones is okay, right? Oh, I just made a judgment. You can talk to me afterwards. <laughs> right? but, but we have a justification. I mean, I've seen the essays, the gospel of Game of Thrones. We got, we got a way of, right? We, it, no matter what you believe, that we, we justify the way we enter into all these little things. Right? We justify it. And so we're distracted from what is good. We find ourselves in places where we, we don't have control. So if the second one is distracting, a distracting sin, the third is a sin that devours. And here's where you and I often find ourselves. Is it's the sin of secrets. It's we've taken that show and we don't tell anybody we watch it, but we watch it. Or when everybody leaves our house and we go look at pornography. Or we see this husband tenderly treat his wife in this way that we long to be treated and we put ourselves in that relationship and we begin to nurture it and think about it and how it would be if we were there. We begin to nurture and intentionally plan out how we're going to find moments to take hold of these sexual things that aren't appropriate, right? And, and so my question, as you hear me talk all about this, and I, I understand that I, I've been vague, and I've been vague for a reason, because most of you are adults and you get it. I don't need to say anything, Right? You understand what I'm saying. What I want you to think about as I'm saying it is where am I in this? Where is it that I feel broken in my gender or in my understanding of who I am as a sexual person? Where is it that I am just grasping for whatever I can that's put in front of me to lose myself in? And what is it that I'm keeping secret? What am I nurturing? Now, yes, 
Some of us are younger, so we have smaller narratives, right, about this. Some of us are older, and so we've been peeling this onion for a long time. Our onion is small, right? If you think about sin as a big onion, we've been peeling. But it's still there. we still got a small onion. We're still working that the layers are thinner, right? Now we have good things to say to people. Usually it's just, don't do that, because I did it. It was bad. Don't do it. Right? That's, that's the older you get, I've learned that that's wisdom, just don't do the stupid things I did, right? That's, that's what wisdom is. Um, yeah, you shed a lot of tears. All right? So, we have this distorting sin, we have a distracting sin, and we have a sin that dev- we devour and devours us. Right? These are the things that we wrestle with, and I want you just to think about those. Now, when we go to church... A lot of times, the, the, the distorting sins, the things, the brokenness in us, they get leaned on because we don't know what to do with them. You know, maybe at the village it's okay because your pastor stands up and says, hey, I've, got, I've had some same-sex stuff in my life that's an issue and has been. So you're like, okay, maybe it's okay for me to talk about that. Right? But the reality is, is that it's not okay to say, hey, we've got some, I have some confusion, I have some darkness, I have some brokenness that I don't know what to do with, right? So, so it's, sometimes it just feels oppressive to even think that maybe you, you don't know how to do that. But, but the other thing is, is that we are obsessed with our maleness and our femaleness, right? We're obsessed with it, both in the church and outside of the church. What it means to be a man, equal rights, right? Where we in the church, we've got all these ways. So this is how a man acts and this is how a woman does it. These are the roles. And outside of the church, we're like freedom and not freedom. And we've got all these things. And so what we've done is because we've chosen power instead of reflecting God, we're obsessed with our gender. And now we've gotten to the place where our gender is fluid. And so we don't even know what to do with that, right? Because our power has gotten out of control. But the invitation from God is always to take our eyes off ourselves and put our eyes on him. And this is really what the message of the church should be. This is the message of Jesus. Listen to what Paul has to say in Galatians 3, starting in verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is not that a man and woman are obliviated or, or, or neither is you know, Jew or Gentile. What he's saying is that your form, the identity that you need to have is not man or woman. The identity that you need to have is in Christ. That the thing that the community of God has to keep saying to each other is, it's not about being a man, it's not about being a woman. Yes, those are important, but they are secondary because being in Christ, reflecting the God of the universe, understanding what the God of the universe has called you to, changes everything. See, we've been talking in this relationship series about a couple things. One, we've been saying that inside of all of us, we need love and we need to know we have impact. These are the two things that we need. And most of the time, we spend our time manipulating each other to get those. In our marriage relationships, in our friendships, at our church, right? We've talked about that. But to be in Christ, we've said, is to say, no, I believe that my 
that I'm loved in Christ and that I have meaning and impact in Christ. So therefore, I can love other people out of that. Yes, sometimes it feels uncomfortable, but I can love people out of that. So to be in Christ is to say, I am loved and I have important things to do in this world because they've been given to me by God. So the message to this brokenness in Eric and his wrestling is, Eric, you're in Christ. And your understanding of who you are as a man is in Christ, not before in Christ. Understanding what God's called you to is in Christ. Not as, here's the role as man and woman. Now those are important, but they're not primary. Now the second thing is, is this distracting sin. And here's how we often deal with it. We deal with it this way internally, and we deal with it this way in our community. And that is to say bad. Bad, bad, bad. You looked at the girl who's walking by, and you looked way too long. Bad. No, you shouldn't be doing that. Right? You look at pornography. Bad. You shouldn't do that. You like People Magazine because it just gets you all excited to hang out with all of those movie stars that you don't know for just a few moments. Bad. Stop going to those la-la lands. They won't save you. Bad, bad, bad. Like we, we do, we like want to join Nancy Reagan and say, you know, just say no to all of this, right? That's for all of you older people, like four of you in this, <laughs> right, in this building. Man, all right, awesome. But, but here's, here's the thing. The, the ancient... Apostle Peter says this about you and I, and this is important because this is what God actually says to us as we wrestle with these distracting sins. First Peter 2, 4 says this, As you come to him, the living stone, this is Jesus, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be holy, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What Peter says is, if you're going to be able to deal with this smorgasbord of sin and identity speakers, is you're going to have to know what your identity is. And your identity is a priest. And you are a priest of a living organism. Now here's what's fascinating about this, is that Jesus never indicates this. The New Testament never indicates this. He never says, if you're in Christ, you're a prophet. Now he says, yes, there are priestly prophets, but he never says you're a prophet. You know what prophets do? They yell at people. They tell them bad, bad, bad. Stop doing bad. Do you know what priests do? They bind up wounds. Now prophetic priests sometimes say, now you shouldn't be doing that anymore or it's going to get worse as they bind up wounds, right? But when you and I face the different things that are put in front of us, if we understand that our identity is a priest, and not only a priest, but in a living organism, we begin to be people who say, okay, when it comes to pornography, I'm a priest. You begin to think about the people in a priestly perspective. When you think of yourself as a priest, you understand that the people around you are wounded and need a priest. Right? Your identity shifts, and when your identity shifts, how you involve yourself, when somebody says, well, this is what beauty is, you say, no, beauty is defined by Christ. Right? There's this, this moment where you're able to speak against things and for people. 
And you're able to offer love and grace and kindness because your identity is a priest, and a priest binds up wounds. And a priest understands how to deal with the forces and the ideas because there's a discipline to a priest and a practice and, and a liturgy right, that they, they walk through that we're called to. Now all of us, and this third sin is, is that sin that kind of we have devoured, the thing that we nurture and grow, and we're like, no, we're not giving this one up. And the way that we deal with this in communities, particularly in church, but we do this in marriages, we do it in our friendships, is that we make deals. We're like, okay, if you don't ask me about this, I won't ask you about that. If you don't push me on this thing, I won't push you on that thing. Like, I will let you have your little secrets to nurture, and I'll nurture my little secrets. See, I can only survive. I can do all these good things out here, but I, I need this. I need this little thing. So let me have it, right? And so we make a lot of deals. We make a lot of deals. In our marriages, there are a lot of deals. In our friendships, there are a lot of deals because we just don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be vulnerable. It's terrifying. We don't want to give up this thing because you know what? That little sin that you've nurtured, whatever it is, and we're talking about sexuality right now, but that little one, it gives you some power for a moment, a sense of control, right? Just for a moment. Well, Peter, in Second Peter, goes on to explain how priests are supposed to operate. In verse 9 of 1 Peter 2, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, which in itself is powerful, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The call of the community of God the community of priests on us and on our sins that are devouring us and we're devouring is that we have to begin to declare what is dark and how God has moved us into the glorious light. We have to repent. We have to put words to the places where we're nurturing things that we shouldn't be nurturing. Now, Now what happens is, yes, in the places where we're broken, we're more prone to do certain things. Right? We're more, more prone to different secrets. The places where we're just easily distracted, we're prone to different secrets. Right? There are different things like that. But the call of the church is to be a community that repents. The thing that you're afraid to speak out, you need to speak out. Because if you can speak out to an organic, organ, uh, you know, a priest, the place that's alive, full of priests, you'll get bound up. Yeah. Most priests are all thumbs and have little medical training. So it could be uncomfortable for you to tell your secrets and to repent and to confess because they don't know what they're doing because they've never heard anybody say anything like that, right? At some level, everything is new and everything is scary. But here's what you and I are to do as priests is to be people who declare what God has done. So if you sit out and confess your sin, guess what hopefully the people of the community of God will do? They'll say, well, guess what? Here's my darkness, and this is what God did. That's part of the binding. So here's my invitation tonight. I'm going to have Corey and Colleen come up, and they're going to talk to you. One, they're going to tell you how they met. Two, they're going to talk to you a little bit about their own 
kind of sexual identity formation before they got married, and then the impact that that has had on their marriage and the ways that God is using that to heal them and to offer them hope. So as you listen, I just want you to think about your own life. Now, we're all in different places. Some of us are married. Some of us are single. But all of us find ourselves in those three places. So this is a, this is an, a harder one, I suspect, to sit up and talk about. So give them lots of grace as they, as they talk. Yeah, give them a hand before they... <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, so Colleen and I met in college uh, in 2006. Um, we were sophomores in a big lecture center of uh, 500 students, Physiology 201. Um, <laughs> so we were talking about, um, actually, we were talking about, like, funny body parts in, in this class. And Colleen uh, sat, like, two rows behind me one row behind me, and was giggling at the funny body parts. And I essentially turned around and told her to be quiet because I was trying to learn. <laughs> so our relationship started a little rocky. I, I, was, I was pretty mean to her. And I was in a relationship with another uh, girl at that time and was not a believer um, Colleen and I became friends because I realized that she was having more fun than I was having. So I ended up sitting with her, and uh, we became study buddies and friends through college. One thing. I also think you realized I was smart. <laughs> I did realize that you were smart. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you, you, you were able to laugh while uh, still acing uh, tests. And I was taking it too seriously and getting, like, C pluses. Um, so, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, so then Colleen studied abroad in Australia. And while she was there, I was being ministered to by uh, some guys in the Navigators, which is a ca- campus ministry at U of A. And I became a believer, and then Colleen came back and... Um, we became better friends, and it, it, it's funny because I think that's when our courtship began, but I didn't really know what it meant to pursue someone intentionally, and so it, we really needed to kind of define more about our relationship, and uh, Lane actually invited me to come to the church and listen to her play in the band, um, and uh, Colleen kind of gave me an ultimatum at that time. She said, you know, you either need to date me or you need to stop coming to my church. <laughs> and uh, the reason was is that at, at, at near graduation, uh, I had like written her and a couple of my other uh, female friends these letters saying, you know, how much our friendship meant to me. And... Um, the one that I wrote, Colleen, I think she still has it, but um, it's definitely a love note. And I did not, I did not acknowledge that um, for like a long time, but it was definitely a love note. So I was in love with Colleen before I was able to like really, I think, formulate a mature way of portraying that. Um, so that's how we met, and 
it was totally Jesus that like we fell in love and it was just really good for us both to be in a really healthy more I'll say more healthy um, relationship that had boundaries Um, I think we both felt really secure in that Um, my story of my identity as a woman um, I just have a history of sexual abuse so I entered marriage just thinking it was going to be bad like I was ready for it to be hard and painful not painful but difficult um, and believing lies that um, because what the message I received in my abuse is that even if I said no that wouldn't um, stop anything so I didn't have a voice And the kindness of Jesus and our marriage is that I had a voice. And um, it was just really, really good for me. So entering marriage and entering a sacred relationship where um, I was respected and loved was really healing for me in places that I didn't know that I could be healed. (laughs) So, um, but I think as we continue in our marriage, as we've been married eight years, um, uh, I, I feel Jesus inviting me, as Eric talks about tonight, like of releasing the control of me standing in my identity that I am loved and I'm valued and I'm cherished and not living in the demand that I will feel that way all the time and so that I can freely love and minister to my husband and offer myself and my beauty and not be afraid and not be afraid of feeling those feelings because Jesus will be with me in those feelings and I'm not alone. And that Corey and I can talk about it and not in a manipulative, like, because we have had those, like, you need to take me on dates and they need to be nice and <laughs> I need, <laughs> and I need pretty things, but, but more of, like, in a desire. And I feel like even in the last year, Corey and I have, like, settled into a safety place of realizing it's not up to us to please the other person or like make the other person feel good um but to just be people and be humans and be broken and to love each other in that place so and you all have ministered to our marriage so much so and uh, the brokenness for me um i think that's really where jesus uh entered into my story is that um, bro- brokenness previous to marriage was like a rejection and um, sexuality was built on this foundation of performance or some sort of evaluative uh, system or even a transactional system. And now the brokenness is, um, well, one, it's a partnership. So we can, we can sit in the sadness and the brokenness together. And when it's lonely... It, the, the message is not, okay, well, th- there, isn't, there isn't anything pleasant in the sexuality now, so, like, you know, you're, you're not a man. It, the, the new theology is, okay, well, it's, it's sad that, you know, things aren't working out, and I, Jesus, will, will be right there with you in the sadness. Um, but I think our, our marriage after eight years has matured in a way that, like, we can just kind of be in the sadness together. It's a partnership. And I, I had never imagined that kind of kind of community or, or, or marital disappointment where we can hold it together. Um, 
But I would say where the enemy gets us cycling is that he uses our sin and false beliefs against each other. And so if I'm disappointed because I don't feel loved in romance, then it becomes a performance thing for Corey of, oh, I didn't do a good enough job. I'm being evaluated. And and we kind of cycle down. But we've done with like the help of people in our community and just us catching ourselves and what we're believing or hearing, like we've done a better job of being like, oh, no, wait, this isn't up to you to meet this. It's not okay for me to demand something of you, and it's also not okay um, that we're believing these lies because we're a partnership and we're just two broken people that Jesus has put together and asked to minister. And so it's really hard and painful and beautiful and sacred. So it's all the things. Anyway, does anyone have any questions? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. Okay, so let me see if I understand your question right, Mike. So how, how does having a kid interact in kind of the complexity of the... the s- You're ministering to each other, but now you have right. a person... Sure. ...that is also a time demand or, or whatever, and, and how does that... Yeah, well, that's that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess what comes to first in mind is that I love my daughter very, very much. And, uh, you know, I would go to great lengths for, for her well-being. Um, but I love Colleen as my wife first. Um, and I, I think that Kate will be blessed by the, the marriage strength. And that, that she will see that. I mean, she's just a toddler now, but you know, hopefully she will see what has been built in front of her by the ways that her dad loves her mom. And I think and I hope that she will see that she is being loved through that. So, I mean, there, there, it's certainly difficult to get a date night and to, you know, to... Uh, be very intentional with Colleen because, you know, sometimes we have a, sc- a screaming toddler that won't eat. And that's really difficult. But through that disappointment, I mean, we, the same rules apply. Is uh, You know, I, I'm holding on to this sadness. And it doesn't mean I'm a bad dad. It doesn't mean I'm a bad husband. It just means that things aren't working out and I need Jesus to enter into that and say, Corey, I'm going to give you like a good, like energizing hour so you can take your wife out for ice cream and we'll send somebody to your house to watch your kid and it will feel like a miracle. It will feel like a, like something really, really heavenly. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, we have it a little easier because she's a toddler. I mean, she understands a lot, but 
when we're having a hard time, we can kind of talk through it and give her a new exciting toy and have 20 minutes. Um, so maybe some of the couples who have older children could answer better what to do when you're having just a hard time and feel like you need to work it out in the moment and your kids are right there. But I, I think I agree with Corey, like us trying to just talk about it and declare what's true and then discern, like, do we need to, like, table this and, like, talk about it later? Or do we need to pray, just stop and pray right now? Or what, what is discerning and going to bless us and allow us to continue to be present to each other and to our daughter? But I agree with Corey. Us choosing to love and minister to each other is us choosing to love and care for Kate. So, And even, um, like, going from what Eric has invited us to, like when we're in the midst of conflict, to say, to like offer a reflection rather than a defense or rather than trying to apologize. Like that has worked really, really well for this marriage. And it has been pretty effective in the way that I parent my daughter. She, she has very few language skills, but I can say something like, in, instead of, oh my gosh, I, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I didn't mean to give you vegetables when you wanted candy. Instead, I could say, oh, I, I, can, see, I, can, see that you're, I can see that you're sad and I can see that you're, you, you might go hungry and that's really deeply affecting you. And that kind of vulnerability I think, welcomes the spirit to just come in and say, you know, we don't know what we're doing in this whole parenting thing, but like God has his hand right on it and it's going to be okay. Thank you guys so much.